0: We study billionaires, and this is episode 101 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons, they'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston
1: Pish and Stig Broderson.
0: Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Brodersen, out in Seoul, Korea. And today we read a book, and this one was really a lot of fun for me. I, I really enjoyed this book. I don't know if, Stig, did you like this? or? Yeah, that was
2: really interesting and very different
0: way of looking at leadership and success.
2: I don't think we covered this angle before, Preston.
0: Yeah. So this was good. So the name of the book, (laughs) since we didn't tell you, the name of the book is Creativity Inc. And this was all about the founding of Pixar. This was written by Ed Catmull. He was one of the key founders of Pixar. And so he wrote this whole book. And what he really captured in this book was a couple different things just from like a top-level point of view, he tells his story of how he got involved in making 3D animation movies. And then he really gets into this idea of how do you create a business that focuses on creativity and doing things that have never been done before? And then more importantly, how do you protect that business from becoming obsolete as more competitors enter the market and time marches on, how do you continue to keep that startup feel and that creative energy flowing within the business? So this was really interesting. Now, I want to highlight, you know, our show really tries to study billionaires and how people kind of achieve at that level. I do want to caveat this episode that Ed Catmull's his personal net worth, the guy who wrote the book, is around $10 million. So he's way off the mark of being a billionaire. But I will say that he took a startup company, Pixar, and he was one of the key people that helped Pixar grow to this $7.4 billion valuation whenever it was sold off to Disney. And Ed was instrumental through that entire process, along with Steve Jobs, who was really the main guy who owned all the equity in Pixar and was funding them. Through all of this while they were not profitable and really kind of gave them the start. So, this is really kind of a story of Steve Jobs and Ed Catmull working together and a few other key players kind of building Pixar into what it was. So, that's why we chose this book. So, Stig, you liked it. I liked it. So, what I'm going to do is just kind of tell the story of Ed Catmull kind of starting off, and Stig's going to chime in and kind of help me out. But then the thing that I really want to talk about are the four things, and Stig, I know has a couple of things that he wants to hit, of really the key findings that Ed came up with that really kind of set Pixar apart from all their competitors and how they were able to dominate this market. And I really want to talk about how they really kind of completely changed the landscape of creating animation films. So we'll talk about that kind of in the second half of the show. So to kick this off, let's talk about Ed and his story and his journey of creating Pixar. So he starts off the book with this amazing story about watching at a very young age. Do you remember his age, Stig? Like 12 years old. or I mean, he was like a young kid, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But at a young age, he watched this video of Walt Disney. And Walt Disney was describing on this video how he... Has achieved so much success with animation. And his big point was that with the characters that he draws, he wants the emotion and the expression in their face to really come to life so that you can feel the emotion coming through that cartoon character. So if you were going to animate for Pixar, they animated a lamp that's like their logo kind of jumping across the screen and then it kind of turns and looks at you and does like this thing that you actually think that that's a living object. And that's really what Walt Disney was describing in this video that Ed Catmull watched as a young kid. Well, that video had such a profound impact on Ed, even through adult life. And he never really forgot this interview with Walt Disney. It had such a profound impact on him. And so... Like I said, Ed went on to major in college in computer science. He then started working for an ARPA, which is the one that I'm a little bit more familiar with is DARPA, which is this government organization that they put a bunch of money and they invest a bunch of money into. And the government makes these large leaps in technology and technological advancements because they're funding things that are like a 10x jump and capability. They have like these moonshots, if you will, and capability. So Ed Catmull went to work for this. At the time when he worked there, it was called ARPA. And one of the things that he did at ARPA was he was one of the pioneers, one of the first people that was creating uh, 3D animated objects on computers. And when he was doing this, it was at a time where really kind of 3D animation. There wasn't much processing power on the computers that they were using to actually do this well. Like The objects that they were building were really generic and really basic. But Ed went through this. He ended up going to New York. He worked out in New York for a bit. And then he finds himself working for George Lucas under Star Wars. And George Lucas actually stood up this division... Where George Lucas was really trying to leverage computers and computer animation into his original three Star Wars movies. And so he brought Ed Catmull out to really kind of run this division of 3D animation and trying to mix it and synergize it with the way that they did special effects, just you know, the old-fashioned way with the Star Wars movies. So this was really kind of where Ed got his start. He worked with George Lucas. He talks a lot in the book about how George influenced him, which I found to be a really interesting discussion, I'm sure, Stig. And so he worked under George Lucas and just really kind of had a lot of influential moments and learned a lot from George Lucas's leadership style. So that had a profound impact on him as he went on to be the president and kind of run Pixar later on down the road. And a lot of George Lucas's qualities kind of come out in his leadership style.
2: Yeah, Ed was very impressed by George Lucas's determination for what he's told Ed was either you do it or don't do it. Don't try doing something that really leaves you room for a lot of failure. And this was definitely something that Ed brought him to Pixar later on as we'll cover later. Like he made a ton of mistakes, but it was not like, yeah, let's see how this goes. It was more like we're doing it and we might fail, but we are doing it. And that was a point that I really
0: liked. So Pixar gets more advanced in their graphics and their animation that they're able to do. And they kind of get to this point where they're really kind of starting to make things that look like... I don't want to say it looks like the caliber of things that they're doing in today's day and age, but they're starting to make these 3D objects that are able to move and kind of move around the screen. And what I love about this book is he talks about how even back when he was a computer programmer and he was just starting to work on 3D technology on a computer, how his goal in life was to create a full motion movie with three dimensional objects on a computer. So this was like something he wanted to do when he was in his 20s, like way before the technology was even there. He wanted to make a movie. And this was something that he just kept telling himself, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to eventually be able to do this. And it just seemed like he along the way like that was probably never going to happen, but he he stuck to that dream and he stuck to this goal that he had. And so it was just amazing to hear the development of that. But for me, it was amazing to hear that at such a young age as he was going through the story of how this all unfolded. So got to a point where George Lucas really kind of, you know, he's finishing up some of the movies and some of the technology, I think, was a little bit further behind than where he saw it. And more importantly, George Lucas needed to raise some money for his follow on films because they got in some budget concerns and things like that. So for George Lucas, it kind of made sense hey, I can raise some money if I spin off this 3D animation company that I kind of started on the side to take care of things. And so he started looking for potential buyers to try to sell Pixar, the division that he had created, off into other things. So long story short, along comes Steve Jobs later down the road. And Steve Jobs came in and there, he kind of talks about this long relationship where Steve Jobs was interested, but never really made a formal offer. And eventually Steve Jobs bought Pixar. And this is after he was ousted from Apple. Yeah. And the whole
2: dynamic between Steve Jobs and Cattle was just really interesting. And I think a lot of people have probably heard about How a lot of different businessmen and women over the years have trouble working with someone like Steve Jobs, because especially in the early days of his career, he was very, I want to call it eccentric. And Steve Jobs always seems to know the right answer, but he didn't always agree with Ed. So before Steve was actually acquiring the company, Ed was asking so what if we disagree about a management decision? How is that going to work? And Steve Jobs' response were, I would just explain it to you until you understand that I'm right. And I I just found that hilarious. Think about having a leader like that. I'll just explain it to you until you realize that I'm
0: right. Well, Um, Ed's Ed's question, just for for a little more context on what Stig's saying. So Ed asked this question to Steve Jobs whenever he knew he was a potential buyer of the company. So Ed was kind of like filling out all these new bosses, if you will, like, do I even want to work for this guy if he buys the company? And that was one of the questions. And And basically Jobs' response was, well, I'll just I'll just keep explaining it to you until you agree with me. By the end of the day, whenever they
2: started working together, Ed said that if they didn't agree, there are usually three things would happen and they were equally likely. And he said that one thing is that he would discuss it with Steve and he would actually sometime realize that Steve was right. And other times they would discuss and Steve would say, well, you're right, Ed. And then the third and most interesting option was that they would still disagree after a few meetings and Ed would just go ahead and do whatever he felt like doing. And the interesting thing is that Steve would never say anything to that because Steve didn't respect anything as much as passion. And he felt like it was if he was willing to go through all this hardship to do this anyway, even though like he was really giving him a hard time for it, it must really mean he was so passionate that he would ultimately be successful than that. I think that was a really redeeming character because there was a lot of very controversial things about Steve Jobs, but this was definitely one of the most redeeming uh, characters about him, that he was actually so much respecting passion, which was just so important in a company like Pixar in the first place.
0: And it was neat because Ed, that last option that Stig was describing there that Ed would exercise, he would just do it. He didn't really find that out until he probably worked with Steve for five or 10 years. It took him a while to figure that out. Like At first, it was very emotionally charged, and he didn't really know how to handle it. But after he had worked around Steve long enough, it was kind of like, I'm just going to ignore him. And, and then he found out that Steve really never did anything whenever he did that.
2: And what I really like about this book is that Ed Catmull seems so authentic in everything he's saying because he's not afraid of making Sam vulnerable. And that's one of the things that we're always looking for in these books that we're reading about these successful people. Are they afraid of making themselves vulnerable, like really vulnerable? And he actually said that whenever he met Steve Jobs in 1985, in many ways it was not nice because he felt and knew that Jobs was smarter than him and he actually felt threatened. And for someone as successful as a catmull to actually admit that, even though clearly Steve Jobs was super, super smart... I think that gives a lot of credibility to the book. And he's not afraid of saying, I've met with some really cool people. They were smarter than me. I completely respect them. And not in the sense that you hear a lot of CEOs saying something like, yeah, I always hire people that are smarter than me. And you kind of feel like they don't really mean it. But Ed Kaepernick was really sincere and authentic about some of the people that he really felt was a lot smarter than him. And when he's also so... Frank to say that I was actually feeling threatened. I mean, that's not impressed or anything like that. it was. He was using words like embarrassed and threatened by other people, and that's something that you really have to, you really have to give him credit for the honesty that he shows.
0: The thing that I really liked about Ed's book is his writing style is phenomenal, which is something you'd kind of expect out of a guy from Pixar, but. His storytelling in the book is obviously phenomenal. His writing style is phenomenal. You get the sense that he's just such a humble person and somebody that you would love to get to know. Okay, so we'll continue on the story here. So, one of the things that I really liked about the story between Ed and Steve Jobs is he really kind of talks through a lot of Steve Jobs's the way he saw the business evolving. The way that Steve thought of things from an owner, from like, hey, Disney's gonna do this next. So you guys need to be prepared and set yourself up for this decision that you know, Disney's gonna come at you and they're gonna want it to renegotiate at this point. So we have to situate ourselves and maneuver ourselves into this key position before. So from like a business standpoint, if you're really wanting to understand acquisitions for large Big billion dollar acquisitions and how some of these guys, some of these billionaires think through things. You got a little of that in this book, and I really enjoyed that conversation. It was really, I'm not going to get into the specifics on the podcast, but if you would read this book, I think that for people out there to hear that conversation and to hear that thought process, it was really valuable reading. And I think that it was something that a lot of people will enjoy. So let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
1: Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and just really short, it was like Steve Jobs was explaining
2: about the timing of different events and he was saying, oh yeah, we know that Disney wants to acquire us. We need to be successful. We need to create Toy Story. That was, by the way, a type of move that was never seen before. And they even had to invent new technology to make that. Steve Jobs were like, yeah, we're just going to invent new technology, then we're going to create a new movie, it's going to be number one, then we're doing the IPO one week later. Like, And he was actually doing all of these things like they would happen. He was doing the whole roadshow, the whole racing capital on everything, just like it was 100% certain that Toy Story would just be a blockbuster, and it was. And then Disney, one week later or something, actually called them And renegotiate the contracts, just as he said. And they offered him what seemed an obscure amount of money. But it was exactly what Steve Jobs actually predicted. So, as Preston said, there's a lot of great details in the book about this acquisition, but it was really impressive to see how certain Jobs was that certain things would happen. And it was exactly how it played out.
0: You know, I like the comment about Steve saying, so this is what's going to happen. At this point in time. This is what's going to happen next. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a number one film. And I kind of see that as a common thread amongst a lot of these billionaires that we study is they they literally think in these terms of like, okay, so we'll, you know, in five years, we're going to be here. This is going to happen. And I think that mindset is so important for people as they're trying to create things and to think in that positive direction as if it has already happened. It's it's an amazing mindset. Okay, so once you kind of get through this discussion of Toy Story, which was the first major big hit for Pixar, that was just a total blockbuster, total game changer. Like we said, Disney came back. They wanted to renegotiate the terms because they felt very threatened at that point. And Pixar really kind of established themselves as a major competitor to what Disney had been doing up to that point in time. So. This is where Ed talks in the book about a real change in his own personal life because from the time he was in his 20s until this occurred, which I don't know what his age was when Toy Story came out, but I would guess he was you know 50 years. I really don't know what his age was, but he was older at this point. And the thing was, is he had accomplished his major life's goal at that point. His major goal was to create a 3D animation movie, full length movie at this point. And he did it. And he said, you would think that at that point it would be really exciting to go on and make the next film and the film after that. He said, but to be honest with you, I went through a major emotional event in my life where I felt like I didn't really have anything else left to do. He really never felt so lost in his life as the way he described it in the book. And so he said it took him a full year to really kind of grasp but what it was that was next for him to do. And the thing that he kind of settled upon and that really kind of gave him the passion and the motivation and energy to kind of move forward and move on to the next thing was this idea of how do I preserve and protect Pixar at this point from becoming like so many other creative companies out there that die and lose that touch, that initial foundational touch that the whole thing was all about in the first place. And so he really kind of sets off on this journey of trying to capture what are those things that protect your company and protect your creative company specifically to maintain this standard. And that's what Stig and I are going to kind of outline right now of what we... Because he talks about a bunch of things. He really kind of goes in this whole different direction in talking about their leadership style at Pixar... They talk about how once Disney bought them, Steve Jobs helped to negotiate that Ed would be in charge of not only Pixar now, but also all of Disney animation. And as Ed took on Disney animation, they had all of these problems because the management style within Disney was very robotic and not very creative at this point. And so he talked about that process. He talked about how he tried to preserve the process at Pixar, and he threw out a bunch of different things. And what I did is I made a list of the four things that I found to be most important that he talked about. And so I know Stig might have a different list, and he might have the, some of the same stuff. But what we're going to do is just kind of a back and forth on our four main points of what we kind of captured for that idea. So the first thing that just from an overarching Point of view that I found, and this was more from the way Ed described things than the way that he directly told the reader what he thinks people need to do. And the number one thing that popped into my head after reading this whole book was the idea of humility and being humble. And that really comes from the way Ed was a leader. And, you know, I've never worked at Pixar, so I might be completely wrong. You know, if you're an employee, you might think that Ed's a total jerk, or or you might completely agree with this, but from the information I gathered from the book and from reading his comments, he came across to me as being a very humble person and a person who doesn't see himself as being this big shot president of the company and the guy who's running the show. He was more of this figure that, yeah, I'm the president. And if you guys can't make the decision, I will make the decision, but I'd rather sit in a meeting and allow everyone to take part in the creative process and be that balanced person that just provides good, candid feedback. And I want every person to be a part of that process. And so his humility to me was such an important part to the success that he has had with Pixar and Disney animation, because they went on to do big things. As soon as Ed took over, you saw them start having some enormous hits as far as the movies that they started making. So that was my first one. I want to hear what Stig got for his.
2: I think my first point is sort of like piggybacking what you just said. And it's about how people interact. I actually have another point about interaction too, but in the interaction terms of can everyone really speak their mind? And this is actually, I think it's within the first two minutes, something like that in the book, where he talks about at Pixar, they used to have like, Table cards. So they would say a Catmull CEO or whatever other name and title you would have. And the problem about having that, it might seem practical, it should be avoid confusion, is that people go into a certain role. So it would say, you know, John Smith, the creative designer. And when you're put in a box, you're not creative. That's basically what he's saying. And he was also very humble about that the good. Ideas didn't always come from the top, like everyone should be able to participate. So for him, it was about creating the environment. That was also some of the points that Preston was touching on before, but creating the environment to empower your employees and make them thrive. And he's very humble about him being at the very top, and that's not always a good thing. He said that at some point in time, he felt like there was actually No problems in the company. Like, no one was showing up late, no one was like ever rude. Everything seems to be completely perfect. And he questioned that and he said, Is that because everything is perfect now, or is it because my reality is very different from the reality that my employees experience? And what he figured out, probably not surprising when you hear it, but what he figured out was that it was just his reality because he was now the CEO of this big corporation. Then people would behave differently around him. They would give him more attention. They would listen more to his ideas. Like that was not the way actually worked at Pixar. Everyone couldn't just speak to each other the way they wanted to. That was really strict hierarchy, which is not always good in a creative environment. So again, this speaks about his humility as well and also speaks well of him in terms of being open to the idea that his reality is not everyone's reality. And I really like that
0: point. So, my next one is refinement. And let me just provide an example. So, have you ever, you know, when you were in college or high school or whatever, and somebody hands you a paper that they just wrote that was, you know, a creative process? When you write something, it's a creative process because you're creating something that's never been written before. And this person would write this and they'd hand it to you and they'd say, Hey, can you read this over and tell me what you think? And you know if you see any grammar mistakes or whatever, you know, fix it or whatever, proof it. So, what I find, and this is so common in so many people, is when they write something, they literally just finish writing it. They hadn't even read the whole thing from beginning to finish, and they've already handed it off to you to review for like the final product. Like they're getting ready to turn it in, and they just want one person to look at it. And you can tell when you're reading it for the first time that the person themselves that wrote it never even refined it themselves. They just looked at it, they just typed it, and that was it. And I read a book a long time ago that was very influential for me as far as writing. And the title of the book is The Elements of Style. And this book is all about that idea of refinement. And it goes straight to the stuff that Ed was talking about in this book at Pixar is they are obsessed with refinement. They want to go, once they get something okay, it's a 10% solution, let's go back. It's almost like a sculpture. You you knock off the big chunks at first, then you go back and you refine it a little bit more, and then you refine it a little bit more. Then once you really kind of get... Call it the hand on the sculpture. You can really start digging into the details and really kind of breaking it out, but you wouldn't start off with a sculpture by making the hand perfect and then trying to do the rest of it. And that refinement that they go through there is a very thoughtful process. And what they did is they actually stood up a thing called a brain trust within the company of just a couple people that would watch, you know, where the film was at and they'd go through it. And they would make all their notes on why they thought maybe a certain scene or something wasn't working. And they would basically just identify problems. They wouldn't provide solutions at all. That was actually built into their model was just to identify the problems. And then they'd hand those problems off to the director and the person who was responsible for implementing change. And that person could look at it and either A, make the change, or they could completely disagree with it. They had that latitude to to act in the direction that they wanted. But this brain trust acted kind of like the audience and the viewer, if you will, to provide feedback and comments. And they constantly were going through this refinement phase in order to make their product perfect and optimal. So kind of going back to my initial example of writing a paper, I know you've also been handed a paper from a person who has gone over it 10, 20 times in your reading and you're just like, this is amazing. This is, this is phenomenal. And that's a result of refinement. And so I think that when you talk about the creative process, it's so important to just go back, get many opinions. Some of them you're going to agree with. Some of them you're not going to agree with. But you got to go back and you got to really, really work at things in order to make the quality just amazing. And that's something I really captured out of Ed's comments.
2: Yeah, it really seem impressed in that the quality was just so important for everyone. And that's also a part of the mission and part of the purpose. Whenever they're doing, I think it was one of the Toy Story movies as well, but apparently it shouldn't be got in the theaters, it should be like a video version. It was really stressful for everyone because they felt that the quality was not good enough. And I really like that about an organization, like if everyone is stressed out about the quality and not so much in terms of, well, they're actually pretty sure it would make a decent amount of money. But it seemed like people didn't care about that too much. It was more about, well, quality, because that was the purpose why they were there.
0: So that was my third selection as well, Stig, was about the quality. But where I would like to maybe even comment on that a little bit more of like, so why are they so obsessed with pumping out top quality? And what it really comes down to is they care about their customer. They care about the viewer so much that they do not want to give them a bad product. So. It's actually customer focus when you kind of pull back the onion a little bit more on it. Like, okay, so why are we so obsessed with quality? Because we want to make our customers extremely happy. And I think that where a lot of businesses miss the boat on when you take that approach of focusing like a laser beam on the customer, which you're actually creating, what the benefit of that is, the long term benefit. And I think that's the really key word here is the long term benefit. Is that you are creating a brand with power over the long term. And so that's why when you look at Steve Jobs with Apple, quality was like, there was nothing more important than the quality of the product. You look at Pixar, which you know Steve Jobs owned it for the longest time and Ed shared that vision of quality with him and that focus on customer experience. And that's why the brand got so strong And what a common theme that we see. I mean, Amazon, you name it, any big major company out there, and that is how they operate. They are so focused on the quality and the customer experience.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan you name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either, because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah. So I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash card. All right, back to the show.
2: One of my high points is about failure. And I really, I always like this discussion about failure. And I think action speaks louder than words, because a lot of companies are saying, yeah, it's it's okay to fail, we'll learn from our mistakes. But I don't think that many companies are actually really, I wouldn't say passionate about making mistakes. I think that would probably be wrong to say that, but really accept that as a premise of doing great work. Clearly, this comes for the CEO, but he actually brings up a very interesting example in terms of failure. So he's saying that at some point in time for Toy Story 2, the movie was actually more or less deleted, and it was because of a personal error. Apparently, some employee had typed in the wrong command, and then 90% of the movie just disappeared. And then, well, luckily, they had a backup system in place. Well, the problem about that backup system was that they actually didn't install that correctly. So there's actually no backup. So this is pretty bad. They've been working day and night for this for a year or something like that. So this was really, really bad. And this was actually really lucky. And one of the employees had taken her own backup because she was, I think she was pregnant or she was in a maternity leave at that point in time. So she kind of had almost all the files that were automatically backed up at her computer back home. So they didn't lose the movie. But he said that actually happened next was really interesting. They didn't set out to find and punish that person. Surely they were making sure that the system worked and it wouldn't happen again. But he said that whoever did that, they weren't that interesting and they never announced that. I don't know if they even realized who that person was. Perhaps it was to sugarcoat it, I don't know, but that was actually what he said. He said that his thesis was that his employees had good intentions. And even if they had good intentions, they might still mean that random events occur. But at the end of the day, it's not a question about random events. It's a question about trust. And if you don't trust your employee, you can't have a good organization. And he said, it was just something that just happens. I found that point really, really interesting. And I think it's really admirable that they're actually not setting out to find that person because I think a lot of organizations would look for the scapegoat. I think that would be the first thought that would come to people's mind.
0: You know, if you're wanting to learn a little bit more about that concept, we did an episode on a book called The Speed of Trust. I don't remember the episode number, but it gets into a lot more details of what Stig's talking about. And for me, I totally agree with you, Stig. The message that's now sent to the rest of that entire company is, you know, I think I can actually trust this company. I think that they genuinely care about me, even if I make a mistake. And boy, let me tell you, you're going to get some real performance out of people when they start thinking like that for you. And here's another comment I want to kind of make for maybe our younger listeners of the show, especially ones that are maybe at the point where they're thinking about what career field I want to go into and work in starting out, is think about a culture that you want to work in. We talk a lot about the financial sector. And I can tell you one thing, for most companies if you would make a major mistake, kind of like the one that Stig described at Pixar in the finance industry, not only would you be fired, but you would probably be uh, (laughs) paraded around in front of people, you would have been fired so bad. And that's the culture of that community. So each one of these industries, finance has kind of a cookie cutter culture within it. You go to maybe a more artsy kind of background. It has a culture that's that's built into it. The music industry has a culture built into it. And so what I would tell you is look at your own personality traits that you want to try to protect and keep and make sure that they totally align with that profession that you're looking to go into. Because the longer you stay in an organization and a culture, it will change you. And it can take some of those things that you value most... And pull them away from you. So be very conscious of that because it can really change and manipulate your life in a major way. Not that one's right or wrong. With the the main thing is is what is your internal values, and you need to find something that when you go into that workforce, it's not going to rob you of the ones that you value most and that that you do want to hold on to. So we'll come off the <laughs> the topic, but I think it's really important. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really have anything else for the book. Did you have anything else,
2: Stig? Yeah, I had a few points, and I think one of the points that I really liked, and this is actually to say something about how authentic the book was and how we might sometimes be perceived by our own intentions. So in the last part of the book, Catmull talks about the merger with Disney, which happened in 2006. And at this point in time, Catmull and John Lasseter, he was also one of the top guys. Both of them would be running a division between them, so in Pixar and Disney. So they would pretty much take it over. And Ed actually talks about how he wanted to create a creative, sustainable environment, and he ensured the Disney staff that it shouldn't be like you know a mini Pixar or whatever you want to call it. I mean, they should still have their own identity he didn't want to merge cultures because he really respected that the cultures was really different. But as I was reading through this chapter, I was thinking, he is not seeing much is going on here. He was actually doing everything he could do to turn Disney into Pixar. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that leaders have to live their culture to be successful. They probably can't lead any other way But to come as a leader and say, I don't want to change anything with your culture, what you're doing is perfect. And then what Ed was doing, starting to pinpoint everything that was more or less wrong and firing people that he didn't like, there was too much Disney and not enough Pixar. I was like, did he even see what was going on? And I'm not saying that his intentions were bad or anything, but for me, it was just very profound that even someone with the best intentions he was actually doing the exact opposite of what he was promising himself and everyone else in the organization. So I'm really curious, Preston, what your thoughts were about that section in terms of changing the culture in Disney.
0: I guess I didn't read it that way. I kind of read it a little differently. I, th- I think he went in there with the intention of not changing it. But at the same time, I think there was things that were functioning poorly within Disney that did need to be changed. And, you know, he had a model over at Pixar that did work. I mean, that's why they were able to do what they did. And so he took some of the things from Pixar, brought it over to Disney and implemented them. And people that I think he removed from Disney were the people that could not sit in a room and take criticism well or provide comments of criticism to the group and just this kind of open kimono type sharing of information and being open and honest. If you didn't fit that way of interacting, then you just weren't a fit anymore. And I think that that was a little bit different to the previous Disney culture that existed. And I think that that was a good change. So I guess I just, I read it a little differently than you, Stig. I I really did.
2: Yeah. And I'm pretty sure we agree with this, Preston, that he was actually turning the culture into something that was better. I actually think he did that. But I think in that sense, and perhaps this is because there's actually no really good solution to this, sometimes it seemed to me that Ed was looking too much at symbols and not always at the reality. So one of the things that he said was, it was very important for him to personally thank each employee to tell them how much they meant to him and to applaud their effort. Well, whenever I read that, I felt, well, that's you know that's really, really nice. And in the way he told the story, it felt like one big family. Now, I've been on the receiving end of that whenever I was an employee. And I had the CEO that, well, he actually knew my name because I was at my office. Or I don't want to say office. My, my tiny cubicle was just outside his office. So that was actually why we knew each other somewhat. But he had no clue about what I was doing. And he was walking around an entire day in the company, and you know, shaking hands and telling everyone, like specifically, how important it had been. But I just found that so insincere. I mean, I think the intentions was good, and the intentions really important. But he had no clue about like ninety five percent of the staff, and it just seemed like to me it had the opposite effect. Whenever I read something like this, I'm also very cautious about what people are saying and what's actually the reality. And I'm really sorry if this comes out of something that's that's negative. I can see, Preston, you have a you have a point. So I'm curious to hear that.
0: Yeah, so I, I want to talk more about this handing out the checks thing. So it's interesting because whenever I read the story of in the book about Ed doing this, I got a very positive vibe from it as I was reading it. And then as I hear your story, Stig, I can also understand and see that viewpoint of how you would have experienced that and what i think is really the key variable here is in your scenario you felt like you understood the true intent of your manager and that was you know managers always hand out the checks and they go around and that's what they do that was in your in your example that was the intent that you read on that manager that you had at that point in time now the people at pixar might have had a completely different read on Ed, depending on how they viewed Ed. If It was a very genuine thing that he really wanted to go, get to know them. Hey, what did you work on during this film? I really want to know what you did. You can tell, and this is the thing that I found in life, is that human beings can sniff out an intention faster than anything on the entire planet. Okay, that's what I've learned. And so, if you buy into that idea, and you're listening to this, Make sure that if you're doing something and your intent is to really just kind of not be sincere, be genuine, but it's actually self-satisfying what you're doing, people know that immediately. It's not something that they actually have to be told or something that you have to disclose or hear from another person. They can sense it immediately, whether it's genuine or fake. So pay attention to your intentions because everyone around knows what they actually are.
2: Interesting. And thank you for showing me the more positive angle. It could be really interesting to see what actually happened. I think we all have tried to be appreciated by your know, superior. It's just very different if you feel like that person actually knows this about you and are telling you that it's, you're doing a good job. And then if another person is looking at you, he kind of know who you are He might even know your name and he's saying something like XYZ, I really appreciate your effort and what you have done for this company. We couldn't have done this without you. And then you just hear him say the same thing to the person sitting in the cubicle right next to you. And you just feel, oh, man, we're just wasting each other's time.
0: <laughs> or, or he has his assistant say, okay, the next person is Stig Brodersen. He did, yeah. a, he did X, Y, and Z, and you should thank him for this, <laughs> which um, happens. I mean, I have seen some of this just ridiculous behavior, but you know what? If as a leader, and I guess we're getting into more leadership discussion here, but as a leader, if you go up to the person and they're in your workforce and you say, hey, Stig, you know, hey, tell me all about what you've done this last month. I really want to get to know you. Hey, what's the name of your wife? You know, do you have any kids? Like, have a candid conversation. It's obvious he doesn't know you. You don't really know him. But when you're candid and you just have a pure intention to get to know the other person, man, it makes such a difference. People buy into it. People respect that. They, you know, you're being real. You're being sincere. All right, so guys, sorry to kind of get off on a divergence. As you guys know, we like to teach other things than just value investing and all sorts of stuff that we kind of go off on a tangent. But we feel that it's very important information to talk about some of these things, and we enjoy talking about it. So that's why we go off on some of these tangents sometimes. In short, Creativity Inc. is the name of the book. We're going to send out our free executive summary of the book. It's like five pages long here for anybody that's on our email list. We don't send out any spam. So make sure you guys sign up on that to get our executive summary of the book. I really like this book. I think it's a really important read for people that are looking at a couple different things. Corporate culture. How do I create a brand that will be enduring how do I become more creative as a person? If you're in a business that requires creativity, this is a fantastic read. And just if you're kind of interested in the whole Steve Jobs, Pixar kind of business, I think it'd also be a great read to pick up. All right, guys, that was all that we have for this episode. We'll see each other next week.